This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear The Pet by Nadine Gordimer, which was published in The New Yorker in March of 1962. Erica Morgan, she sometimes had educated Africans to lunch, told him that he could sit in the living room and listen to the radio if he liked, but he never did. The story was chosen by Joseph O'Neill, who's the author of four novels, including The Dog in Netherland, which won the 2009 Penn Faulkner Award for fiction. Hi, Joe. Hi, Deborah. So what drew you to Nadine Gordimer? How did you first come across this story? I've actually been familiar with this story for a while because uh, I teach up at Bard College, and one of the courses I was teaching was a course on political fiction. And I looked at this story and I saw that it was quite interesting on that front. In that particular framework, we did we did look at the politics and we looked at um, the historical context, which is apartheid South Africa, and a context which is now a sort of mythic context for students at college these days, um, but which was, when I was at, at their age, very important. I mean, in the in the eighties, you know, there was a lot of um, activism surrounding apartheid, international activism. And the movement to free Nelson Mandela was was a sort of important part of a, of a of, you know a student experience in those days. And so, I suppose, from a personal point of view, reading the story reminded me of that era. Right, and the story is about a white couple who employ a black servant who's actually not from South Africa, but from Nyasaland, which is three thousand miles away. That setup has some inherent political content. Do you think of the story as being explicitly political? I mean, when I when I read for politics, I'm, I'm not really reading for you know explicit proclamations. I'm, I'm reading for a, a number of things. I'm, the chief of which is the role of the state. Where is the state in this story? And it's 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 very interesting because, as you say, the protagonist Gradwell is from Nyasaland, which is now Malawi. And in fact, the story takes place, and it, there's a reference to it, during the um, years in which uh, Malawi was achieving its independence. And um, he's even lower, if I can put it that way, um, than the South African blacks, um, because he's undocumented. And so he's a stateless person, in a way, um, and sort of enjoys none of the benefits that, you know, supposedly attached to citizenship, even the unjust citizenship that um, was offered to South Africans who were black and coloured, to use their terminology, uh, in, in the apartheid times. And the story was published in, in 1962. As you say, it, it's the story of an illegal immigrant, in working conditions that he's afraid to lose by by going home or by even leaving the house he works in. Yeah. Do you feel or did your students feel that this has resonance now? There's a sort of anachronistic sort of dimension to this story, which I suppose we could talk about, which is that, um, you know, there's a the younger generation now, these sort of people in their 20s, I suppose, have a political framework which isn't, same as mine, and um, and of course, all the the question of immigration is obviously you know an, an important one, which I think concerns everybody of all ages. I do feel that this sort of frank treatment of racial difference that you see in this story is something that might have given some of them pause, um, simply because the story does what you know good political fiction is supposed to do, which is it complicates the reader's relationship with his or her own society and power. Um, in other words, you all sort of, the, if the more you look at the story, the more uncomfortable potentially you can become. And this whole, I'm using the, the this word you, and it's, there's a very important use of it uh, early in the story. 
because I suppose the question, one of the questions to be asked is, who is the story being written for? Um, where does the reader stand in relation to this? Is there a, is there a way in which the reader is, as it were, dragged, especially the white reader, but in any case, even even the black reader in America at this time would have felt this. Is there a way in which the white reader is implicated in in the story? Um, is this a slightly sinful story in some ways? And um, and for me, I think that's that's the sort of that's where the sort of this wonderful power of the story is situated. And it's interesting to think about whether the white author is implicating herself or maintaining a certain distance from what she's observing. Yes, and uh, when I was coming here, I, I did wonder about this story, not only from the point of view of whether it would be straightforward to write about these this sort of situation now as it might have been then, um, and and whether or not the reception of the story it would be the same now as it, as it was then. I suppose we'll find out when we look at it. Since the story has been published, there's been much more emphasis placed on interrogating the situation of the white writer in relation to the black subject. And um, it's not necessarily an interrogation I would be um, conducting myself with any great sort of fanaticism, but it's there. As I said, it's one of the great, one of the great fun of reading the story, which comes from straight out of this apartheid world, is, 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 is you know, to just think about how, how you look at it now. And also how it was looked at then. I mean, it is important to remember that, that several of Gordimer's books were banned by the South African apartheid government. Yes, it's worth making clear. It's worth emphasizing. Gordimer was a real battler against apartheid. She was an absolute... She was a member of the ANC at a time when that was illegal. She um, was a very close ally of Nelson Mandela. She, she would have assumed many postures which which were risky, personally risky to her. And as you say, she was censored for for much of her life in South Africa. So she's she's on she's on the side of the angels, historically speaking. I suppose that what I'm suggesting isn't that you know there's something sort of superior or questionable about Gautamer. Far from it. It's just that it's just that the very notion of the angel is now in question in ways which I suppose are unavoidable. Yeah. Well, we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Joseph O'Neill reading The Pet by Nadine Gordimer. The Pet Gradwell worked for some people called Morgan. Their house in Johannesburg was a small house with a large garden, three cypresses, and a splendid view. The plates were always hot, and the ice was plentiful. The sheets smelled of sun, and the fires burned brilliantly on any day of the year that Erica Morgan felt like having one lit. The Morgans had no children and were happier and more prosperous than many of their friends who did have them, which somehow did not seem to those friends entirely fair. Still, there it was. The Morgans went to Europe every two years, bought books and records and even an occasional picture, and lived with their dogs in their delightful little house, attended by excellent servants. Gradwell vacuum-cleaned the carpets, polished the silver, and shined Reg Morgan's shoes, and changed into a white drill suit twice a day to serve lunch and dinner. He was a Nyasa, with a face so black that the blackness was an inverted dazzle. You couldn't see what he was thinking. He was deft and quiet about the dining room, and on those nights on which the Morgans went out, he sat up with the dogs to keep watch over the house. Erica Morgan, she sometimes had educated Africans to lunch, told him that he could sit in the living room and listen to the radio if he liked, but he never did. He sat in the kitchen at the table and wrote to his wife. The two dogs, pretty Scottish terriers with tartan collars, snored at his feet. In the four or five years that he had been writing letters to his wife to this accompaniment, he had never mentioned the dogs to her. He wondered as little at the fact that it was his duty to sit up with them as he did at the incomprehensible ritual 
of the order of dishes that he served so efficiently at the Morgan's dining-table. He did not know his wife very well. He had married her four years before, when he went home to Nyasaland on leave for six months. He had not been back since then, not only because of the money, the train fare for a journey of nearly 3,000 miles ate up a disproportionate amount of his wages, but because he was working in Johannesburg illegally anyway. He was an immigrant without a permit, and he was afraid that if he went out of the place, he would not be able to get back in again. It was impossible to stay at home in Iasaland, of course. How could he consider working for two pounds a month there, when in Johannesburg he could earn eight? He sent money home to his wife every month, or rather to his uncle, to keep for his wife, and he had bought himself a waterproof watch, as well as a set of the sort of well-cut clothes a man wears in a city. Not that he went into the city itself very often. As he had no papers, it was risky for him to hang about the streets. He was safer at home, in Dorshop Road, in the anonymous apron of domestic service. He had long ago stopped even going out to the suburban post office or the shops. He always asked Mrs. Morgan to buy the stamps and envelopes that he needed, and the tobacco with which, with paper from the pantry, he rolled his own cigarettes. On his days off, he went to sit in the rooms of other exiles like himself, men from his own village who worked in the suburbs, foreigners who kept a wordless fellowship beneath their conformity of Stetson or starched uniform. At first, he sought them out because he was lost. In all the world, only the Nyasa village was familiar to him. But later, as the years went by, he went to them out of habit. There are always, even in the most cosmopolitan of cities, little groups of men who have forgotten the old country, but who continue to meet because of it. When he had first come back to Johannesburg after he was married, he had been moody for a while. He, who Mrs. Morgan said, was the nicest, most docile person in the world, quarrelled with the cook, and then took offence at the first word of reproach from Mrs. Morgan. He even ran the risk of going out to get drunk at a shabine one night, but all the luxurious, painful pleasure of a debauch was lost, because he could not sit in the sun and recover next day, as they did at home in Nyasaland, but had to be in attendance at a luncheon party. "'I am sorry, Gradwell,' Mrs. Morgan said, firmly, humorously, "'but you must go through with it today.' These guests are people we stayed with at the Cape last year, and this lunch has got to be decently served. Here, take this and your cope. Anyway, if you feel awful, it'll teach you not to get into the habit of drinking, which is just as well. And she gave him two Alka-Seltzer tablets in a glass of water. It was true, of course, that if he began to drink, he would be much more likely to be picked up by the police. The Morgans, too ran a risk with him, while he would be packed off back to Nyasaland or drafted to farm labour if he were found out. They would be fined a few pounds for employing an illegal immigrant from another territory. It's sort of a little conspiracy we're in together, Mrs. Morgan would explain to friends who complimented her on Gradwell's efficiency. But soon the awareness of the eighteen-year-old girl, his wife, wore away, faded off his mind and his skin. He had come home again, to Johannesburg, to Dorshop Road, to sleep alone in the European bed and the decent European outbuilding that the Morgans provided. His passions hibernated. He never thought 
to acclimatise them. This was not home for them. There was a child, born to the girl in Nyasaland some months after he had gone. He felt responsible, jaunty, and somehow accepted into the world of men when the letter came, telling of the boy's birth. Mrs. Morgan sent the child toys at Christmas, and wondered that Gradwell did not at least have a photograph of the boy. He explained that there would be no one in the village with a camera. Two years later, there was a letter from his uncle, saying that the child had died. He did not know what to feel. He had never seen it. For his wife, well, next time he went back, he would make another child. What else could he do? He had a post office savings book now, Mrs. Morgan deposited his money for him, and he drew out some money and bought his wife a dress. He was even quieter than usual as he went about his work. The Morgans thought he was depressed and made signs of understanding and commiseration to each other behind his back. But the truth was that he was listening, listening to himself, listening for something to sound, some note from within. There was a place there, at his breastbone, but nothing came. He simply went on, waiting at table, cleaning the silver, even wiping up after the dog. There was a new dog in the house, a bulldog puppy. In the afternoons, he sat in the yard outside his room in the sun, wiped a piece of bread round his dinner plate, and was content. There was no use the Morgans denying it. Next year, when we go to Europe, you must take a chance, and you must go home to Nyasaland while we're away, Mrs. Morgan said. We'll have to try and work something, some sort of past that looks right. When she tried to talk to him about Nyasaland, she was always a little embarrassed to discover that he knew absolutely nothing of the interesting political developments among the Africans there. At this time, Mrs. Morgan was much preoccupied with the bulldog. It was her dog. She had admired bulldogs as a child in a fascinated, horrified sort of way, and Reg Morgan had consented to buy it chiefly because there had been such an outbreak of burglaries in Johannesburg that he felt it was time they had a really good watchdog around the place. The Scotties were alert little chaps, but one couldn't expect anybody to be deterred from entering the garden by the sight of them. When the bulldog came, he was a squat, shambling puppy, terrified by his own ability to knock things flying. He seemed to sense the world of inanimate objects cowering before him, and his power appalled him. He messed all over the house and ate with uncontrollable gluttony, often disgorging his food again as fast as it went down. Mrs. Morgan adored him. Her childlessness took revenge on her at last, and she cradled a beast. She loved and petted and spoilt the Scotties, but for the bulldog she had hopes, the mark of the real maternal passion. Wait till I train him, she would say. To us he'll be the nicest, most docile thing in the world, a handsome, dignified, well-behaved, clean bully boy, and to those wicked burglars, murder. The dog grew up. He slept about the house all day, but the muscles of a pugilist grew on his thick shoulders and his barrel-bellied body. His huge, hard head, with its giant nutcracker jaw under the flapping, dribbling chops, could push you downstairs if he wanted to pass you on the top step. Gradwell 
and the other Morgan servants hated him from the moment they set eyes on him. They hated him even before then, for the bulldog was the symbol of all the white man's savage glee in turning the black man from his door. The dog felt their hatred and showed the obscure shame of a beast, flattening his little hippopotamus ears on his ugly head as he went past them, crouched low to the ground. But there was nothing else that he understood, it seemed. Erica Morgan did succeed in teaching him to be clean, though he left his snail trail of saliva wherever his snout brushed by. But all her sensible patience and quiet, controlled commands could not teach him the simplest obedience. And as for being a watchdog, he slept through all warnings of intruders given by the Scotties and allowed strangers to walk past him up to the front door without so much as a bark. It had proved impossible to anthropomorphize him into a handsome, dignified, well-behaved bully boy. And somewhere along the unsuccessful process, he had lost the instincts of a dog into the bargain. Erica Morgan was disappointed in her pet. The final touch came when she found a lovely mate for him, a beautiful, brindle bully girl for her bully boy. The bitch was brought to the house in Dorchop Road because the Morgans thought he was too highly strung to be sent to the kennels. But though the bulldog and the bitch were given carefully supervised privacy and were shut up in the garden shed together for three days, the poor bulldog would not mate. When he was released at last from the shed, he ran away and sat with his fat, miserable back hunched against the door of Gradwell's room. Gradwell, who always put the dog's food down before him with repugnance. It's no good, Gradwell, Erica Morgan said that day with irritation and exasperation, clipping the lead onto the bitch's collar. I'll take her back to the kennel. Really, I am fed up. If at least we'd had a pup from him. She felt she could say anything to Gradwell. He was rather a favourite of hers among the servants. He and she were, as she put it to herself, two human beings, and never mind the colour or the master-servant thing. Gradwell opened the garage doors and the gates and closed them again behind her as she drove away with the bitch. It was just before three o'clock in the afternoon. He went into the kitchen and fetched his lunch, which was in the oven keeping warm. The other servants were already in their rooms, and he sat down on a barrel in the yard outside his room, making a threatening movement with his foot towards the bulldog as he did so. But the beast, unaware, as usual, of what he had done wrong, but always conscious of wrongdoing, of failure, only shivered with appeal along his thick back and pressed against the closed door of the room. The man sat eating bread in the winter sun, a man who had no child, who slept with no woman, who scarcely ever went outside the gate of Erica Morgan's yard. At last, something moved there, at his breastbone, but dully, a depression. He broke off a piece of bread and threw it, saying in his own language to the dog, Here! And startled, changing swiftly from the expectation of a blow, the dog snapped the morsel into its great mouth. That was Joseph O'Neill reading The Pet by Nadine Gordimer. The story was published in The New Yorker in March of 1962 and was included in her collection Not for Publication and Other Stories, published by Viking in 1965. So, Joe, the story's called The Pet, and at the center of it, we have a pet, this kind of miserable bulldog that 
won't live up to any of the expectations placed on it. Um, why is that dog there? Is he a symbol? Is he a metaphor for Gradwell? What What is he doing in this story? Yeah, he seems to be up to a poor old dog. I mean, he's, <laughs> he seems to have a, has a sort of, you know, um, he's this sort of slobbering bulldog, which I think is familiar to, to many of us. And um, he's sort of expected to sort of perform this role as this kind of watchdog and sort of um, against the sort of burglars. And um, he just isn't up to it. It's not in his nature. So he's been miscast. And I suppose you could say, although this might be a little sort of pushing it a bit, uh, he's been a little bit alienated from his from his destiny as a sort of, as just an ordinary dog. Right. And uh, <laughs> he's been sort of professionalized. They try to give him a job, basically. And they try to house train him. They try to add him to their roster of sort of domestic staff, even if it's Mrs. Morgan, Erica Morgan, feels a special love for him, a maternal love expressly, especially, you know, she, he's sort of a child to her. And the the combination of the dog and Gradwell has obvious resonances of different kinds, and the resonances merge in the title, the pet, and you ask yourself, well, who is the pet here? Is it, is it simply this dog, or is it, uh, or has Gradwell been sort of reduced to that status. Domesticated. Domesticated. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a, it, it's surely not an accident that uh, Mrs. Morgan calls Gradwell the nicest, most docile person in the world and then calls the dog the nicest, most docile thing in the world. Yeah. I mean, sometimes, you know, you have to sort of dig deep into stories to sort of... Sort of to... Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. Tease out their sort of metaphorical <laughs> intents, or not not even intended possibilities, and not and you don't have to go very far in this one. It's it's a story that actually risks a certain directness, and um, which is which isn't necessarily a prized literary sort of quality. But at the same time, what's so great about the story is that it never feels anything other than, than accurate. It tries to create a point of view which is. I think above the fray, I think that this, this story is in many ways, from a technical point of view, quite typical of, a, of what I think is a, is a slightly lost art, um, which is mid-century fiction, the commanding third-person voice, you know, the sort of voice you, you might encounter in the, in the writings of Flannery O'Connor or Richard Yates or, or Muriel Spark. This just very commanding and enthralling third-person voice, which, you know, is now seen as too omniscient to be fully self-aware. 
um, and is sort of and he's sort of treated with a certain amount of suspicion now, um, which I think is a, is a shame because you can do things with stories with that voice, which um, you you know you can't with another sort of voice. So in other words, the story the narrator doesn't identify with anyone in particular in the story. In fact, this identifies expressly with Gradwell. And, and I think the sort of the mysterious and sort of key thing on that in this story is, is this phrase where the storyteller says, right at the beginning, he was a Nyasa with a face so black that the blackness was an inverted dazzle. You couldn't see what he was thinking. And I suppose the question is, who is this you? Who is the uh, second person there? Is it the reader? Is it a moment of identification with Mrs. Morgan? Because in due course, the story actually does see what Gradwell is thinking or does try to see it. And what we learn uh, as, as we read is that Gradwell, in this story at least, seems to have been emptied out of the interior life that... Um, he might otherwise have had. He seems to be disconnected from his passions, from the paternal feelings that, you know, that, that he would have had, even from the sense of mourning. It takes him a long time to sort of get around to, I suppose, processing the death of his child. And um, so that he's been dehumanized. I mean, that's, that's the sort of, you know, the technical term, I suppose, that you could easily apply there. I mean, if it, what's fascinating is that the, the sort of repetition of, of him expecting to f hear some noise coming from his breastbone, you know, obviously that, what is that noise? Is it emotion? Is it passion? Is it excitement? Is it sadness, anger? There's something that's not coming out of him or that's not making its way out. Perhaps it's in there. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, I mean, the breastbone, I suppose, is typically associated with the heart and um, rather than the brain. And so that I suppose the suggestion is that the realm of feelings is the one that's been most affected. Since he's not, Gradwell isn't sort of intellectual. His, his mental life is dominated by traditional concerns, traditional memories of his village from which he's been removed. And so that his feelings have been compromised or made obscure even to himself, the implication would be that um, this is as a result of his membership of the wretched of the earth. You know, he's been um, been reduced to a sort of an imitation of, of a man rather than the yeah. real thing. Yeah, well, when he comes back from his his wedding, presumably he his passions go into hibernation. Um, yeah. She even says that. They just sort of... But they they go away, um, and maybe that's his only way of getting by. There's a, a really interesting moment where um, I think the first time the the noise from his breastbone comes up, and it doesn't happen, and he kind of this is an indicator that he's actually content with his current situation, even though Mrs. Morgan tries to deny it and says we have to send you home the next time we're in Europe. You know, you have to go back. You must be feeling these emotions that he's not actually feeling. And I wonder why why Gordimer depleted him of those sort of righteous emotions that he should be having, that we would expect him to have. You know, you sort of wonder whether there isn't some psychological or even ethnographic dimension of inquiry which, which is being withheld from us. I mean, is it really possible that Gradwell has such an impoverished kind of emotional life. And I, and I think the story is, is saying, yes, that is possible. And, and I think this is where Nadine's Gordimer's bi biography is interesting and in some ways reassuring, which is that it's not as if she's writing about a world that she's not personally familiar with. Um, she's very, very detailed, certainly about the, in a sort of, you know, effortlessly satirical way about the sort of bourgeois couple, the Morgans, you know, who are Gradwell's bosses. Um, but she doesn't shrink from, but then she has a very different uh, way of approaching Gradwell. Um, he's, it's much, so he's a much more mysterious figure, much more other figure for, the, for, for this particular narrator. And um, 
and I think and I think she 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 sort of I say she I mean the story the story basically believes in in this in this possibility which is that Gradwell is not as kind of realized as 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 as, he, as a human as he might be and that that's a a result of his of his displacement yeah well you see a, a very systematic infantilizing of him you know that he <laughs> the one time he goes out and gets drunk and and Mrs. Morgan is saying, here, dear, I'm sorry, just you're going to have to take some Alka-Seltzers and pull yourself together. And mm-hmm. and the fact that he... Yes, let that be a lesson to you. <laughs> he stops even going to the post office. You know, he has her buy him a stamp every time he wants to mail a letter. And he and she puts his money in his in his post office account for him. Yeah. You know, it's all, it's like pocket money. It's all kind of, uh, every little scrap of agency has been removed from him. Even though, in a sense, Mrs. Morgan, that's not her wish. This is a perfectly decent couple. These these are the nice kind of whites of right. South Africa. These are the people who are, you know, um, sympathetic to um, the victims of apartheid and, you know, presumably are the liberals. These are liberals. They go to Europe and they saw all the indicia of, liber- of liberalism are there. They, they have educated Africans to lunch. Yeah, they have. So they're not sort of, <laughs> they're not quote unquote, you know, they're not white supremacists. No. Which is what you know um, that system was about, obviously, um, and yet, of course, they accept without too much self scrutiny the the sort of benefits of the system, which I, I imagine uh, was would, would have been characteristic of all the right. white liberals then. They have the self righteousness of of believing themselves liberal, and yet they benefit from a system that's been set up to serve them. Well, they have they have they have a strong argument. Which is that um, their argument would be a consequentialist one, which is to the extent that they um, that they that they live in South Africa, the net result of their of their being there is to you know uh, I suppose spread the wealth. I mean, it's a very um, it's a classic sort of you know it's a classic argument in favor of domination. <laughs> <laughs> but also and also that they they treat their domestic help respectfully and you know mrs gradwell says he is a person forget the color thing yeah forget the the master servant thing he's a he's a person and and she cares about him and she truly cares about him yeah does she know him probably not so it's interesting to think of of what gordimer thinks of the morgans how much she wants us to approve or disapprove of the way they behave yeah i mean i I do feel that there's a slight element of of mocking going on here, um, but I don't think that approving or disapproving is is it would be the political framework that she would have been operating under. I mean that's a, that's a sort of contemporary sort of idea of of of, of reading, which is to sort of and I think a problematic idea in many ways. And I don't want to be too reductive about that, but it is a sort of strain of of kind of kind of certainly consumption, if I can put it that way, of literature now. That that the function of of a fiction to many people, not to all, but to many people, is to, as it were, is to enable the reader to sort of decide, rather in a rather sort of superior sort of way, um, you know, who who the good people are and who the mm. bad people are, and and and, and find you know, the moral of the story. Find the moral of the story, and also to sort of use the story as a sort of as just part of the, um, uh, or consume the story as part of the the sort of things one would consume to sort of acquire a certain kind of moral prestige it's all cultural capital i mean there's a lot of cultural capital in 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 sort of projecting oneself as sort of superior to other people morally superior i don't think gordon is doing that i think um that notwithstanding the sort of the obvious satire of the sort of overcomfortable uh, bourgeois whites in south africa at this time and their complicity i would have thought and i'm, I'm projecting here that what's interesting is the is the other structures here which is that um once society is organized in a certain way and once an immigrant, for example, is legal, then the, the human potential of, of that human is, 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 is deeply compromised. And I suppose what one, what one of the many things one comes away with is this sense that of, of how important it is that society is structured in such a way as to enable and empower people to sort of exercise reasonable autonomy. And Gradwell is, as you say, he can't even go to the post office. Um, he has he has no autonomy, um, and and not only that, um, he doesn't even have the self 
that he's supposedly the agent of autonomy, and that even that's been taken away from him. And all he's, and all for a six pound a month or whatever it is difference yeah. in, in his income. So why doesn't he just move home? We live with his wife and, you know, have another child and... What is the huge benefit? Well, I think I think well, there's the, there is a sort of he's, he has he's on triple the money, but as you say, there are sort of overheads associated with living in in South Africa, far away from home. But of course, Malawi or Nyasaland is itself no picnic, and unless I'm mistaken, was was one of the poorest countries in the world, and so there's just a chronic failed state there, and independence, you know, in the sense of transferring power from the colonial. Britain to, who was it? Was it Banda, who was the uh, original, you know, first president of the of, of Malawi, would not necessarily strike someone like Gradwell, to the extent that he followed the politics at all, as an obvious recipe for sort of, you know, improving outcomes in Malawi for someone like him. And of course, we know that he doesn't follow the politics. There's that that line where. Uh, you know, when when Mrs. Morgan tried to talk to him about Niazaland, she was always a little embarrassed to discover that he knew absolutely nothing of the in- interesting political developments among the Africans there. Yeah. Um, interestingly, that line is cut from the the story when it was published in book form. Oh. Disappeared. I I was looking at the story in a collection yesterday. Oh, wow. Did um, you know anything more about that? I, I know nothing more about why... I know nothing about why it would have been taken out. Um, perhaps just seemed too, you know, obscure a reference to for a contemporary reader. I don't know. But this is the 1965 volume, yeah, I, so I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I think it's a good line. I think it's a very good part of the story. Right. Um, because, it, first of all, it tells us something about, about Mrs. Morgan, which is that she's politically aware. Yeah. She's not just some you know, uh, sort of mindless suburban housewife. Right. And it shows us that he's not politically aware. And, you know, this is revolutionary South Af- Africa. I mean, there's a lot of independence. There's a lot of fighting going on in Africa at this point in history. There's a lot of fighting that's about to happen. There's a lot of decolonization going on. Um, it's a very, as, as, as she would put it, it's a very interesting time. But on the other hand, he's just trying to make a living and support... The wife he barely knows. Yeah. Um, come back to the dog. Um, because on some level, obviously, the dog's a pet. Gradwell's been domesticated like a pet. They live somewhat parallel lives. But everything that the dog is supposed to do, keep watch over the house, you know, grow up to be a handsome, dignified, well-behaved, clean boy, you know, those are the things that Gradwell has done. Mm. Um, Gradwell sits up at night with the dogs watching over the house. Yeah. Um, and yet, Gordimer has the dog completely fail at all of these duties. So yeah. In a sense, it's the contrast to Gradwell. You know, it's the it's the failure. Why do you think this dog is such a mess in the middle of the story? <laughs> you know, no, I do feel like, I mean, I'm just, I'm just thinking about this from a writer's point of view for a second. You know, how do you write about a dog? You know, to, and, and she she actually uses the she actually says somewhere the story says somewhere you know there's a limit to how far she could anthropomorphize the dog, which ultimately just you know retains its essential dog dogness, which is an, an awareness of being hated by the people who are taking care of him by all Gradwell by all the black servants yeah. who hate him and and Cortimer's, you know she writes that the bulldog is a symbol of all the white man's savage glee in turning the black man from his door. Mm. These black men are inside the door. They're in the house, and the bulldog's doing nothing to them except feel ashamed. It's interesting that that he is hated. That the dog is hated. Well, I suppose I'm just looking at it from. I'm just following the line of thought which, which the story offers that to the effect that you know that, that the dog was hated because of his political <laughs> connotations, <laughs> and you know I suppose it's just like having a sort of you know, a little pet Nazi in the house. You know, you you almost feel like, you know, there's that classic thing, like, I wish I had a little bit more information here. I don't, actually. I don't wish I had more information about the story. But now that, you know, you you raise it, I suppose you'd want to know what is the sort of dog-owning culture um, among non-whites, or in, in this case, in Nyasaland. Do people in Nyasaland even have dogs? And what sort of dogs do they have? Um, you know, to have a domesticated animal 
or certainly a dog would be a is usually is usually something you associate with, you know, sort of European countries or Western countries. I mean, for example, even in Turkey, where my grandfather had a dog, the custom was to own the dog and feed the dog, but the dog would run wild during the day and then just come back in the evening. Um, and that would be your dog. That's That was how dogs lived. And the servants wouldn't be cleaning up after them. Yeah. Yeah. But it's funny how much sympathy you feel for the dog in this story. Even though you feel for the dog, you feel for the shame of the dog, and you sort of buy it as well. Yeah. Even though it does seem a bit far-fetched from the psychological point of view. Well, what happens in that final paragraph? You know, the Gradwell goes out and sits in the yard. The dog is sitting in the yard. They're both feeling diminished. And suddenly this, this sound comes from his breastbone, even dully, and he shares his bread with this creature. Yeah, and, and the emotion he finally feels is depression. Yeah. which The Morgans have been um, using mm-hmm. in relation to him earlier. His feeling is very specifically a, a sort of um, described in terms that we would associate with um, Western psychology. He feels depression, but maybe he also feels compassion. I mean, it's it, whatever he's feeling or hearing makes him turn to this other creature and, and share food. Yes, it's an act of hospitality or generosity. And it's, it, it's, a sign, it's also a sign of a kind of awakening in him, which is that even though he's feeling depressed, his humanity has been awakened. And the result of that is to feed the dog something. So that although he's sort of, you know, he's probably only just starting to mourn his son at that point in a more sort of a, a sort of powerful way. And and his first deed is to is to sympathize with the dog and maybe to glimpse something of the dog's predicament. If this is a turning point for Gradwell, do you think the next day will be different? Is is something going to change in his life? No, I, I, you know, nothing's going to change. Um, the only thing that could change is, is the society around him. So to the extent that um, this sort of legal regime remains in place and, the, and, the, and as you say, he's an immigrant, he's an illegal immigrant, to the extent that those laws remain in place, he seems doomed to live in a state of chronic precariousness. Um, and there's that very telling moment in the story where it's revealed that the, that the, the sort of asymmetry in what's, what will happen if, if Gradwell is ever arrested which is that the, um, the the Morgans will pay some a small fine, a few pounds, yeah, yeah, and and he will be potentially taken into into forced labour, um, so that he, he and alternatively deported, and it sort of reminds you of that of that idea that the state is your biological controller, and that your body, even your body, is not is not yours. So your body ultimately um, is at the mercy of of the state which can either remove your body from the from the from the area or force it to do things um that it you know that it wouldn't want to do then you ask yourself about the way in which the dog has this issue with its own body it's sort of the body is much more strong than it wants it to be it's sort of it's he's sort of bigger and more muscular and, and more powerful than than he'd want it to be um you know this this dog has you know this dog has a lot of issues. <laughs> yeah. Well, also this moment of sympathy comes after the dog has simply steadfastly refused to mate. <laughs> you know. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That was his one moment of choice. This poor dog. He said no. Yeah. He can't even procreate. And in, and in or that he didn't s- want to. He didn't want to. Um, but it would seem that he that he couldn't in some way, um, or that um, he hadn't. He's maybe his. I mean, one doesn't know. Who knows what went on in that shed? They were, they, I think he and the, he and the, uh, and the bitch are sort of locked, locked up. up for three days. Yeah. Um, and nothing happens. They sort of, they, he just wasn't at, in the mood. And at, least, um, and at least Gradwell has had um, the experience of procreation, which the dog hasn't had. But then it's been robbed of him. You know, that last paragraph begins with that amazing line about, you know, Gradwell, a man who had no child, who slept with no woman, who scarcely ever went outside the gate of Erica Morgan's yard. And at that point, he sort of becomes one with the, with that dog, stuck in the yard. Yeah, another way to think about this, um, and to sort of broaden it a little bit, uh, and I think this is, I think Nadine Gordimer was a sort of left-wing person. 
who um you know would have been kind of interested in mark in marxist ways of thinking about things is is that gradwell is just a sort of very vivid example of of what happens when your whole life is boils down to making enough money just to sort of survive and just to have children and uh, and where the possibility of 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 a kind of excess is isn't the the excess that amounts to the kind of comfort and that gives amounts to leisure so that you have some time uh, to sort of develop yourself as it, as the Morgans do when that's just absent um you know gradwell isn't an exceptional condition in some ways in other words it wouldn't just be gradwell who's sort of alienated from his humanity it's 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 anybody who's in a situation where their life is dominated by the necessity the powerless necessity to just make ends meet right you wonder what would have happened if he hadn't married you know if he weren't sending money home if he didn't feel that um, obligation yeah, yeah what would he do the money would have almost no use anyway yeah it's not like he can uh, he can go to the movies or anything it's too dangerous as far as yeah. he's concerned yeah well, thank you, Joe. Thank you, Deborah. Nadine Gordimer, who died in 2014, was the author of more than two dozen books of fiction, several of which were banned for a period of time by the South African government. Her novels include Berger's Daughter, July's People, The Conservationist, and A Sport of Nature. She was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1991. Joseph O'Neill's four novels include The Dog and Netherland. His most recent book, the story collection Good Trouble, was published last year. You can download more than 140 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, including one in which Joseph O'Neill reads The Ormolu Clock by Muriel Spark. Or subscribe to the podcast for free in the Apple Podcast section of the iTunes Store. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.